Is there anyone here who has an absolutely perfect story? No problems, no pain, no sin, nothing but goodness, nothing but happiness and joy. You tell your story and you've got only good things to say. Do you ever think to yourself, if everyone's life story was just like mine, the world would be a perfect place? And my guess is that for almost all of you, that the answer to the last question is, no, I wouldn't want my story to be the story for the whole world because it wouldn't be a perfect place for sure. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would, and the, on, it's eight, page 812 in the Pew Bibles, if you're looking at those. And again, this might seem kind of a strange way to introduce reflection on the Lord's Supper, but I want to start with the fact that there are no perfect stories. Like the fact is, is that I know some of you. Like I know some of you quite well, actually. And you know me. You've heard my story as well. And we don't have perfect stories. Like some of you are really good people. Like there are some of you I really admire and I appreciate. But even those that I really admire and appreciate and know so well, eh, you don't have perfect stories. You know, not not even Michael. Michael's up here leading worship, does such a great job. But Michael doesn't have a perfect story either. Well, I want to go from that thought into the idea that aside from some scattered New Testament mentions, we actually don't know that much about how to conduct worship. We'll get back to this thought here in a bit. But one of the things that strikes me is that we don't really know that much about how to conduct worship when we read the New Testament. Now, it's interesting because in Churches of Christ, we used to think, think that we knew. We thought that we could nail it down. You could go all these different passages and you could put together a kind of a, a conglomeration and an order and you would say to yourselves, we know exactly how worship is supposed to be conducted in the New Testament church. And I'm not convinced at all that that's the way it is. In fact, It's interesting to me that when I read the Old Testament and I see all the things that are mentioned there about worship, all the ways in which it's spelled out so specifically, so precisely, like even to the point where the room in which you are to worship is to have a certain thread count in the curtains that are in that room. And the threads are supposed to be made of a certain kind of fabric. They're supposed to be woven together in a certain way. And you get the impression that if you don't have those curtains right, that your worship is not going to be the way it's supposed to be. It's not going to be acceptable to God. You have violated the rules for worship by not getting the thread count in the curtains correct. And then you transfer that over to the New Testament and you say, okay, let's look for the thread count. And it simply isn't there. There's nothing in the New Testament that gives us any kind of list about the things that we're supposed to do. The closest we actually come is in the case of the Lord's Supper. If there is anything spelled out in the New Testament at all about what worship is supposed to be like on the first day of the week, it's with the Lord's Supper. 
And then, unfortunately, because we do have that kind of action spelled out for us, we do tend to get a bit ritualistic with that. So what I'm going to do real quickly here is I'm just going to go through some things that I think we would say we know about the Lord's Supper. Some of this might surprise you a bit, um, but for the most part, I think you're going to agree with me and, and admit that, yeah, I, I think we got this one right, okay? So some things we know about the Lord's Supper. First, it was a coming together of the church. It was, in fact, a gathering. And so if you've got your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 11, you look at verse 18, and there's a comment there about when you come together as a church, he says, then there are divisions among you. But his point is that they come together as a church. And you're going to find the same language, I think, in verse 33 in 1 Corinthians 11. That they specifically came together, and it's clearly a corporate kind of event. So we know at least this, it was a coming together of the church, a gathering. Secondly, we know that the Lord's Supper was early on celebrated as a part of a meal. Now it's interesting, last time, in fact, one year ago, when I talked about the Lord's Supper on this particular day, I finished my lesson, which was really, much of it was oriented toward the fact that we, uh, we come together on this day and we, we could be celebrating a meal together, but we don't. We celebrate it in a different way than that. And it's okay, but we really don't do it the way the New Testament says. And Ed Zimmerman came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, you kind of left the impression that we need to celebrate it as a part of a meal. It doesn't have to be a part of a meal. He said they, they do celebrate it, or they did celebrate it as part of a meal, but it's not that way. It has to be that we celebrate it as a part of a meal. Well, I think he's right about that. I think the way that we celebrate the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning here is just fine. But the fact is that when they celebrated it in the beginning, they celebrated it as part of a meal. You could look at Jude chapter 12. You don't have to turn there now, but you'd find them mentioning a love feast, and that's what was going on. There's an early Christian writing called the Didache. And if you were looking chapter 9, verse 1 and following of the Didache, you'd find a description of how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And it was, in fact, a love feast or a meal in which they were sharing. So we know that in the beginning, they celebrated the Lord's Supper as part of the meal. I would love it if we would, at least once a year, take the time to actually have a meal together and celebrate the Lord's Supper as a part of that meal. I think that would be cool. I don't know how we'd do it. We couldn't all get together, I don't think, in the gym. We wouldn't all fit. Um, you know, maybe we could take the pews out of here and set up tables and have a big meal in here or something, and people could be in the gym at the same time. I'm not sure how all that would work, but it would be cool if we could do that. At any rate, it was a part of the meal in the beginning. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. In, in Matthew 26, verse 26, while they were eating, notice it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And you'll find the same thing uh, in Luke chapter 22, verse 14. And the whole context of 1 Corinthians 11, if you read through this, is all about them gathering together as a part of a meal. So there's at least two things that we definitely know about the Lord's Supper. There's a third thing. It was a time of prayerful thanks. In fact, the word thanksgiving is specifically associated with this meal. And so when Jesus gets ready to have the Passover meal, it says that he gave thanks. And this is the word, like a lot of times, if we come from some kind of religious background, we hear the word Eucharist associated with the Lord's Supper. And it's this word Eucharist, which actually means to give thanks. Eucharisto means to give thanks. And that's why we call this oftentimes the Eucharist. So a third thing we know is that it was a time of prayerful thanks. 
The fourth thing, it was a time of remembering Christ. Look at verses 24 and 25 in 1 Corinthians 11. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. And then he specifically says, do this in remembrance of me. Sometimes I've heard people say that the main purpose of the Lord's Supper is that we might celebrate together our life together and the corporate nature of all of this. And that's true. But it is also a fact that we need to be thinking about who Jesus is. And Jesus said specifically, do this in remembrance of me. And that's one of the things that we know about the Lord's Supper. Okay? Fifth, it was a time of proclamation. So you look down at verse 26. It specifically says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a proclamation of the gospel that actually takes place in the course of taking the Lord's Supper. And then the next one. It was a time of personal reflection. In fact, Paul specifically calls us to think about what it is that we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. And so he says in verse 28 that a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Now it's interesting, if I was to center on one thing that we don't do in the course of taking the supper together, it might be this one that we don't do as much with. Like we do remember Jesus, I think. I do think that oftentimes we think about one another and and our life together. But for us to reflect seriously on who we are, when we take the Lord's Supper. I don't know that we do that as much as perhaps Paul and for that matter the Lord were thinking that we might do when we take it. So he wants us to reflect on where we're at. The next thing. It was also a time for discipline. I don't know if you ever thought much about this one either. If you look at verse 29 says, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, and there's all kinds of controversy about whether they're recognizing the body of the Lord or the Lord Jesus Christ, they eat and drink judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. And so there's actually some kind of judgment and discipline that takes place in the course of eating the supper. And I'm not sure that we think very much about this one either. There's not as much reflection that we do about our own lives and where we're at, and then I'm not sure that we take seriously the notion of any kind of judgment or discipline that comes into our lives through the supper. Now, I must confess, I'm not sure how all of this works out. I need to wrestle with that. Paul says that there are some who are sick, some who have fallen asleep, which I think means that some have died, which means that this supper needs to be taken a lot more seriously than we do. I don't know what this means exactly. I need some more time to think about that. But what does it mean that the Lord judges and disciplines us in the course of the supper if we're not thinking as seriously about what it means and about our own lives as we should. It's an interesting thought. I need to think some more about that one. And then eighth, 
It was intended as an event of communion. And so again, if you look at verse 18, you look at verse 33, there's a gathering together, a corporate sense about the Lord's Supper. Well, those are some things that we know. It's interesting because if I were to ask you, is there anything else that we know about the Lord's Supper? Probably somebody would say, well, we know that they took the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, they met together to break bread on the first day of the week. That's one of the things that we would say we know. But it's interesting because as you continue to read through that passage, specifically in Acts chapter 20, what happens is that they meet together in order to take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. But then, like so often happens, the preacher is full of himself and preaches way too long. Like Paul just goes crazy. He starts preaching and he talks and he talks and pretty soon... It's midnight. Now, they do have this incident also while somebody falls asleep and falls out the window. Eutychus hits the ground stone dead and Paul has to go raise him. That's never happened to me. Like, I I suppose it could, but it never has. I don't know if that's because we only have one floor. That's probably it. But I've never actually had someone fall down stone dead because I was preaching. I have had twice people pass out in the middle of the sermon. Not a a good indicator. Um, But it's just interesting that Paul preaches as long as he does. And because of that, he preaches past midnight. So they meet together on the first day of the week to break bread. But then it gets to midnight. Well, what happens with midnight? It's a new day. And so they go from the first day of the week to the second day of the week. And then Paul, after he raises Eutychus from the dead goes back upstairs and the text says that they broke bread together. So when is it that they actually broke bread and took the Lord's Supper? It wasn't on Sunday. It was on Monday. So we think that we know something about when we're supposed to take the Lord's Supper, but actually in that case, we don't know that much about it. It's also interesting, like in terms of just taking this meal... We have a fairly standard procedure for taking it. We take the bread in little tiny cups, of course. We take, or sorry, we don't take the bread in the cups. We take the bread in little tiny wafers. Then we take the fruit of the vine in little tiny cups, and we always do it one after the other. In fact, I've seen people accidentally share the fruit of the vine first, and they're very apologetic because they did so. It was an accident. But of course, if you read your Bibles, and you look in Luke chapter 22 you'll find that in Luke chapter 22, the cup is actually shared twice. And so the cup comes first in Luke 22, and then the bread is shared, and then the cup comes and is shared again. And that actually fits perfectly with the Passover because originally the Lord's Supper was, of course, during the Passover, and there were several sharings of the cup of the Passover. I think it's four or five times during the Passover feast a cup is shared. So this is actually historically pretty authentic that they shared the cup and then took the bread and then shared the cup again. But right when we think we've got this nailed down, we got everything right, we know exactly how to do the Lord's Supper, we find out that lo and behold in Luke 22, they don't do it exactly the way it says they did in Matthew 26. And so the one thing that we think we know there, we don't really know. And we're a bit unclear. So we have some things that we really know about the Lord's Supper, some things that we don't know quite so well as we think we know them. Now, 
Another thing that we definitely know is that in 1 Corinthians 11, there is a problem. And I want to go back to this kind of question. This is where we started. Is there anyone here who has absolutely a perfect story? No problems, no pain, no sin, nothing but goodness, nothing but happiness and joy. You tell your story and you have only good things to say. Do you ever think to yourself, if everyone's life story was just like mine, the world would be a perfect place? And of course, the answer still, after 20 minutes, is still that we don't have perfect stories. And what we find out about the Lord's Supper is that the early church, the Corinthian church, didn't have a perfect story either. And so when you look in chapter 11, verse 20, the text specifically says it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Here they are trying to take the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper that they eat. And I think that we need to ask a question about that. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. When does it become the Lord's Supper that we actually eat? And what I want to say this morning is, it is not the Lord's Supper because of the things that we know and that we carry out and that we get right. Like we've already seen, we're not even sure about the exact day. We know the early church was taken on the first day of the week, but for them to take it on a Monday was not unusual. And in fact, the text that we use to institute the Lord's Supper for the first day of the week actually shows that they ate it on a Monday. So we don't have that right. We know that they were not eating the Lord's Supper in a way that they should because there wasn't unity among them. And so you read through the rest of the text and you find out that some people, they brought a bunch of food during this meal that they shared together. Some people apparently had lots to eat. They brought it together. They were eating, but they wouldn't wait for everybody to get there. And then they were not sharing the meal the way they should. And so the people who had lots were eating up what they had. And the people who didn't have much They didn't have any more after that meal than they had before because the people who had a lot were not sharing it with them. And so there's definitely a problem in the early church when it comes not just to the Lord's Supper, but to respect or with respect their lives together. The reason it's not the Lord's Supper that they eat is because when they came together, they didn't really come together. In fact, their lives were being lived apart from one another. And therefore, specifically, apart from Christ. And the point is is that you can't share in the meal of Jesus. You can't have the kind of unity with Christ that you need to have if there is a separation within the body when people are not sharing together in this meal in such a way that brings them together. And so their story as a church wasn't measuring up to what it should be. And here's, in fact, what I want to say. The full story that is ours corporately is different than our singular stories. The full story that is ours corporately is different than our singular stories. And there needs to be 
a story that we tell, that we carry out together on Sunday mornings when we take the the supper together, which represents a different kind of story than our individual stories. Your stories are all broken stories. There is nobody here who's perfect. Nobody has it all together. And so we, we don't have good personal stories. But there is something that happens when we come together, and it didn't happen in Corinth the way it should. But there's something that's supposed to happen. We come together to get on, on a Sunday morning corporately, and we tell a different story together. And the different story we tell together is a story about Jesus. And it's that story that brings us together and unites us, and, and that full story begins to mend and to fix and to change our individual personal stories that are so broken. Next slide. And so the full story that is ours corporately is different than our singular stories. Our corporate story can positively lift us above our personal stories. And no one has a personal, a perfect personal story, and therefore we need each other. Do you see this? This is not typically what we're thinking about and what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. Like because we think we've got it all right, and because we've done this so many times, because we've shared in this meal so often, these are not the kinds of things that we're thinking about. But God wants to fix our personal stories with the corporate story that belongs to all of us. And so we have hurt and we have pain. We have anguish. We don't have great personal stories. But in needing each other and coming together once a week, We not only proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, we not only remember who Jesus is, we not only share our personal lives with him at that moment, but the healing message of the gospel that comes to the church and brings us together and then fixes us corporately. We have a chance to celebrate that together every week. And so the corporate story is what has happened to us together in Christ. The Lord's Supper is not just a ritualistic act where we can get it all right if we know the right day and we know how many times we're supposed to to take the cup, etc., etc. And it's not just about what has happened to us individually, but it's about what has happened to each of us that then becomes a part of a corporate, unifying, common story And it's that story that we tell and that we participate in when we take the meal. And we're going to do that now. So, Bud, you can pass the trays. If this is your first time here with us, the way that we do this is that we pass trays that have both the bread and cup on them. You can take the bread and you can take the cup and hold those. You can put the cup, if you want, in that little circle that's in the rack in front of you. And we will share together the supper. And as we take the supper this morning, I do want you to remember Jesus. I do want you to think about the personal impact on your life of the cross. 
I do want you to reflect on your personal story. But I want you to also recognize that the people around you, the person sitting next to you, even if it's your spouse or your child, they have their own personal story that for a moment together once a week becomes a part of your story. And our stories join together and they meet up with his story. And it's at that moment, I think, when the Lord's Supper has most of its power and impact on our lives. When we recognize not only that we receive this blessing in Christ, but that we receive it corporately and together. And the person sitting next to you is in the same place you are, in need of the grace of Christ. And so we share that together. Let's pray. Holy Father, I, I'm sharing today in a, a supper, a meal with all of these folks. And God, we all have, as you know, our infirmities and our problems and our pains. We all have the ways in which we hurt today. We all have the ways in which we don't live up to what you want us to be. We share together in our, our mutual degraded, weak humanity. But Father, we also know that Jesus, through the cross, has reconciled us to you. And that happens not just for me as an individual, but it happens to all the people who are sharing this meal with me right now. And so we together are sharing in something, God, before you. There's a, a oneness and a unity that is ours as we let our individual stories become the story of the church, which is really the story of your redemption. And so, Father, help us to reflect on that today, to recognize that when the full story is told, our individual stories are transcended with your story. And so you make us much more, God, than we could ever be, even as individuals in your son, but you make us something special as a corporate body in your son. Help us to recognize that today. We thank you for the bread that represents his body. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's pray again. Lord, I'm grateful that we have been able to share the bread together. And I pray that you bless us now as we take the, the cup together. And I pray that the, the cleansing that we receive, that we recognize that it's not just we who are cleansed, but that the person next to us, they're also receiving your cleansing at the same time. And so we're sharing, we're sharing in this cleansing together. And we thank you and praise you for that. Through Christ we pray. Amen. And we'll also at this time uh, take up a collection before we close our service with a song today. 
Let me thank God for our blessings. Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have of living in such a wonderful place. You have given us so much. It's easy for us, God, to take all of this for granted and, and think that the rest of the world is like us, and, and they're not. We just thank you and praise you so much that we live in such a privileged position. At the same time, we recognize that a privileged position carries with it great responsibility. And so help us to take that seriously and help us to give to you and your work accordingly. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.